proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the reformed confessions of the faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The confessional collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen. This is our first podcast, and we're glad you've chosen to join us. Each week, our hope is to have confessing brothers share their wisdom and experience. And today, in our inaugural podcast, planter Joe Thorne is joining us. I personally decided to have a Baptist kick it with us so that nobody could say this Presbyterian isn't diverse in his friendships. Joe, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, why don't you just give us a quick bio? Well, uh, yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, I am uh, married 18 years, have four kids, have been a pastor full-time since 1998, and uh, have planted two churches. We are um, right now in our eight and a half, almost ninth year of uh, Redeemer Fellowship. Awesome. And uh, what kind of books you got in the works right now? Uh, I'm actually working on three books that Moody is publishing. Uh, it's all focusing on ecclesiology. So um, those are due very soon. So I'm still sweating under the deadline. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, we're going to play a little game, Joe, where I'm going to ask you, uh, it's called Impacts and Setbacks. And this is all about books and uh in theologians that have impacted you or have not impacted you. So the first question I have for you is who is your favorite old dead guy and why? I don't have a favorite, uh, to be honest. I've been reading the old dead guys for over 20 years. So, um, there are a bunch, um, uh, I favor the Puritans. So, um, and out of them, uh, even a lot. Thomas Watson is a favorite. Uh, William Bridge, Thomas Brooks. Um, there, there are quite a few. But I would just say, in terms of a category, uh, the, the Puritans are, are my favorite to read. Why, why the Puritans? What, what made you settle on them? Uh, I found that they were obviously. Um, it's, it's just pure undistilled reformed theology but it's very experiential um and sometimes they catch a lot of heat from modern critics because they don't focus on the community in their writings as much though they had a robust sense of community uh but they focus more on the individual and on the soul um which is very helpful for me as a christian and very helpful for me as a pastor as i'm counseling with people who are hurting who are struggling um who are doubting so um, experiential or experimental uh, Calvinism is sort of my bag, and nobody does it better than the Puritans. Who, who was the first Puritan you ever read? Uh, it would have been 1993, 94. It was um, uh, Samuel Bolton, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. Okay, very cool. And uh, that moves us to our next question, which is, what theologian puts you to sleep? Another way to interpret this, however, is uh, what's on your nightstand right now. Oh, 
uh, I don't read any books when I go to bed. Um, <laughs> so I usually listen to a podcast and conk out or just nothing. Okay. So is there any uh, theologians that put you to sleep as far as Borea? Uh, boring to read? I like reading, man, so I don't get bored reading. Um, I've heard a couple of Great theologians preach pretty boring sermons, but I'm not gonna. I'm not about to call them out. <laughs> Politically correct, Joe. All right, yeah. that takes us to the next question. Uh, what theologians would you say have uh, stabbed you in the back, is the way we put it? But what I mean by this is maybe hurt you by just surprising you with a turn in their theology or something that just really caught you off guard. Well, mostly it would be uh, people that I know. Uh, pastors and leaders in the denomination that I'm a part of um, that have not so much had theological lapses as much as moral lapses. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously we can think of people that have um, completely wandered off the path of Reformed theology or even orthodoxy, but uh, none of them was I specifically invested in. Um, but there are, there are pastors, there are a few pastors and a few leaders that have um, really uh, discouraged me by, you know, putting themselves first before Christ and before the church in such a way that it brought a lot of damage to people um, and to their own souls. So, yeah, mostly it's people that I that I've known personally. Okay. And that takes me to uh, another question. It says, what theologian regularly punches you in the face? And this one, uh, who really who can get after you and uh, bring about kind of that uh, Holy Spirit uses to bring about that conviction? Yeah, I would say um, J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, might be the, the one that I've gone to the most um, as, as a particular work that has done a, a lot of work in my heart. Um, I've read it numerous times. I've taken other people through it. They wind up reading it more than once. So um, Ryle's book on holiness is, is really good. Um, Richard, Paxter, Richard Baxter's uh, The Reformed Pastor first made me doubt my salvation when I started reading it, then made, me, <laughs> then made me doubt my calling to the ministry. And then as I continued to read, though, um, I found assurance and confirmation and conviction, and it turned out to be a really, a really helpful, informative read for me. Awesome. Was there any uh, theologian that's done that to you most recently? If so, who and on what topic? Uh, can you repeat that question? Is there any theologian that's done that recently, um, and if so, what topic? Actually, the um, the Reformed Baptists are addressing the issue of divine impassibility, and um, there was a, a great primer that came out recently uh, by Sam Renahan, and uh, the but the the big book, Confessing the Impassible God, um, it's put out by RBA. P, or I think that's Reformed Baptist Academic Press. Um, but yeah, the biblical classical, blah, 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 divine impassibility. I don't remember the, uh, the subtitle at this point. Uh, but it is a great book uh, teaching the, the classic view of divine impassibility, uh, correcting some of the modern errors that are out there. And I'm only about uh, halfway through it. But I love the book. And rather than it, and it is a bit more academic, you know, for, for, a lot of people would consider it academic, perhaps even dry, I guess, if this is not their jam. But what I have found is that this book stirs my heart because it really helps us to to see a God who is truly transcendent, who is truly 
unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so I see the the smallness and the finitude of me, and I see uh, the grandness and the transcendence of God, and it just leads me to worship because that is the God that loves me. Uh, it's just – it's really been great. So confessing the impassable God is, is the most recent thing. Well, we're here to talk about confessions and creeds, and so I want to start with I know that uh, you have taken a creed ex- uh, extremely serious. In fact, you have it tattooed on your body, uh, the London Baptist Confession of 1689. And I just want to hear from you, why did you choose that creed, and what was it about it that really resonates with you? Yeah, well, um, just to be clear, um, I don't have the whole confession tattooed on me, uh, but I, I do have uh, – so not all 32 chapters, but I, but I do have 1689 tattooed on my hand. Um, why did I choose that creed? Um, when I was studying Reformed theology passionately and intensely uh, for the first time back in 94 um, – uh, I, I found myself, you know, reading a lot of, of Presbyterians and a lot of Baptists, kind of going back and forth. And uh, as I studied the issues, I, I found my myself um, really lining up with Reformed Baptists. And so um, I got a copy of the 1689 in 1994, and I carried it in my bag uh, ever since. Um, and now I have an app that has the 1689 on it uh, on my phone. So um, yeah, I mean it was it was it's it's a beautiful confession built on the 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 the, the production of our older bigger brothers, right? Uh, the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, and so I loved it because it showed unity with the Westminster and the Savoy by taking their work and then modifying it for the Baptist faith. So I saw it as as really. Uh, Showing like, hey, we're we share the same faith. Essentially, uh, we consider you guys brothers, um, but we differ in these parts. And it really resonated with me and uh, what I believe the Bible taught. So, um, I've been studying ever since then. But uh, yeah, the 1689 is is definitely what I think most clearly articulates my faith. Awesome. Did you ever consider any others as possibly? in that process when you were deciding or to settle on a creed or confession? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I looked at others, um, you know, Baptists have historically been confessional or creedal people, uh, Arminians and Calvinists. Uh, they, they all drew up confessions of faith that all fell out of favor really, I think in, um, uh, late, uh, 1800s, uh, definitely early 20th century. So, um, but no, I, I didn't really want to go with anything uh, more stripped down. Um, I really appreciate the thoroughness um, of the confession that it, it – it, I mean and it's, it's still extremely relevant uh, without being dated. You know, I mean it, it, the, the section on marriage is just fantastic and, and perfectly relevant for um, the issues that are coming up today. So I didn't – for me, there was really not much competition. I'm Baptist and – I don't think there's been written anything better. Awesome. What does subscription look like for you? Well, I, uh, for me, I, um, I, there's, I have a, I do have a modified position on, uh, the standard take on, uh, the Sabbath. So 
really, I mean, I'm, I consider myself a, a full subscriber, but when it gets to, um, you know, the Lord's day and the Sabbath, I really see that being, um, like keeping the Sabbath, uh, as, New Covenant believers, I really see that as being fulfilled in the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day. And as we do that, apart from culture, uh, or at least apart from the world, I, I really believe that that is a part of the New Covenant change, right? Not just from Saturday to Sunday, um, but also in scope. I think the scope is narrower. So I, I do think uh, the Sunday is the Lord's Day. That's the day God set apart for worship. I think we need to be in church. I think we need to be around God's people. I think word and sacrament are essential, uh, all of that. Uh, but I'm not persuaded that it means that we cannot uh, eat, work or recreate on that day. So there I, I, have, a, I have a difference. So, um, but other than that, I'm very much in line. Okay. I know that there's been a lot of debate over this topic of subscription over the years, such as the camps that fall into because it's scriptural – that's one side. The other is in so far as it's scriptural. Um, and then there kind of came a, a middle of the road that, at least in Presbyterianism, where men like Hodge wrote um, the idea that as far as it's, um, it's faithful to the system of doctrine, a person can hold and take mm -hmm. exceptions. And so you obviously have some exceptions you take. How does that work out with your church leadership, and how do you guys wrestle that out as different, uh, different men are being brought forward? Well, our church was actually organized under a different confession. Um, we used the Abstract of Principles, which was the first Southern Baptist uh, confession ever drawn up. And um, <clears throat> it's, it's a good Calvinistic uh, summary of the faith. It's very simple. And um, we wanted something simple, but that would be you know, pretty clear to the people that, uh, that we are a bunch of Calvinist Baptists uh, moving in this direction. So <clears throat> we used that to start. Um, right now, and I've been a 1689 guy for a long time, and our pastors, our elders are all reformed, um, but they they are not yet uh, full subscribers. In fact, um, and it's not that they disagree, it's, it's that honestly they haven't spent a whole lot of time with it. And so uh, last year I began taking them through the 1689 uh, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. Um, and so I think we are right around uh, chapters 12 or 13. Um, and once we get through that, uh, I believe that the elders will adopt the 1689 as the standard for elders. But uh, that remains to be seen. We'll have to cross that bridge when we come to it. What about your church members? Obviously, they just in your preaching and teaching, they're going to be introduced to the, the, your beliefs about the 1689. What is... Um, how do you how do you train and get them to understand why you've chosen that and how that plays out in your life? Primarily through uh, preaching and worship. We use the 1689 for responsive readings, uh, for uh, general readings from the pulpit. <clears throat> worship leaders, uh, we use them in our quotes in in our sermons. So it's it's definitely a part of what we're doing, and increasingly so. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, where I, when I preach, um, it is very much from a Reformed perspective. Uh, we are not one of those Baptist churches that 
you know, is Calvinistic in soteriology, but doesn't really like to talk about Calvinism or Reformed theology or buzzwords. Um, we like the buzzwords, we like the slogans, and uh, we push all of that. And that's not necessarily the flag that we're always waving. We like to think that Jesus is the flag that we're waving. But in terms of our teaching, it's very clearly Reformed uh, from everything from the union with Christ to the covenants to um, law <clears throat> and uh, to everything else. So it's primarily through um, through teaching uh, from the pulpit that that's getting communicated, and then supplementally, I guess, or maybe additionally, not supplementally, um, in the context of worship. How how do you handle as people come in and they're sitting sitting in the chairs in the in the worship and and hearing you communicate and they begin to wrestle with because this is the first time they've ever been introduced to a confessional language. How do you balance your view of Scripture as the final authority and yet stressing the importance of a creed that's not inspired? <laughs> well, this Sunday I'm preaching on sola scriptura. So <laughs> like I said, the pulpit is, is one of those ways that we do that. Um, but we're very clear, just like the confession is very clear. Um, it doesn't get any clearer than the way um, our Reformed confessional standards put it, right? That Scripture is the only certain and infallible rule of saving knowledge, right? That that scripture alone is our perfect authority. And everything else, be it tradition or councils or creeds, must be evaluated uh, by the scripture and must be subordinate to the scripture. And so, you know, while I have 1689 tattooed on my on my hand, I have a lot of things tattooed on my body. Uh, so it's it's not that I'm saying that the 1689 is the be-all, end-all. Um, it is just a very excellent summation of Christian doctrine. But the Scripture uh, certainly is is what is preeminent in our worship. We have numerous Scripture readings throughout the service, responsive. Um, uh, we 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 put a we, we're very happy. To be reading a lot of Bible uh, throughout the service, and everybody knows that you know we preach expositional sermons. We go for 45 minutes at a pop. Um, nobody's confused at Redeemer about what comes first. Now, the new people that are coming in, maybe that are new Christians, they don't struggle as much because this is what they know. You know, that's oh, this is just normal. This is how we do it. Um, but other people that are coming in, maybe from different contexts. Like they're like I have a, I have a guy coming in and his family a great people solid Christians but they've never been in a denominational church, and they've never been in a reformed church, and so you know he's like tell me what to read I want to catch up I want to learn more about these things, so we put a lot of books into people's hands uh, I meet with people regularly I mean all of our elders are very social in that we are ready and available to meet with anybody who wants to meet we just got to schedule it and we get it done so. Yeah, we do that through, you know, reading uh, scriptures and, you know, giving people time. Uh, honestly, you don't have to be reformed to be a member of Redeemer Fellowship. Um, you have to be submissive to the teaching and not divisive. And so we actually have – now, we are a complementarian church, probably soft complementarian because uh, we're not crazy. But um, we're, we're complementarian. We don't, like, hate women, for example. Uh, we love women. and uh, glad love, to hear that, Joe. We love dudes too. Like, we love everybody. And, uh, and we are constantly looking for ways to use uh, – to leverage the gifting of women in our church in different ways. But we are complementarian in that uh, certainly uh, in marriage, the husband is the head of the household and that there are unique roles and that in the church, only qualified men who are set apart by the church can serve as elders. 
So, um, you know, we're complementary, but we have egalitarian members and they're not divisive. They're not angry. Everybody's happy. They, we all know and respect each other and there's no drama. So you don't have to be reformed to be in our church, but you, you do need to clearly, uh, articulate the gospel. You have to know the Lord and, um, you have to understand this is where we're at and there will be no division in our church. What do you say to the people that either come in or even maybe aren't in your, in necessarily in your church, but um, that your people are reading that maybe your people bring back that say no creed, but the Bible and they're wrestling with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't get that junk. I, I got We, uh, I, this is, I'm trying, I'm trying not to be a jerk. I'm really trying. Go ahead and be a jerk. I'm, I'm trying to be super nice. I'm, I'm always a jerk on the reformed podcast. So I'm trying to be nice for your first inaugural, um, episode here. Um, I want to say our people are just too smart for that. Um, no creed, but the Bible, that's, that's actually a creed. So, uh, you just, you just put something that's not in scripture out there as an authoritative statement that binds men's consciences, I could say. So, um, look, man, I'm old school Baptist. I'm old school Southern Baptist even. Um, and BH Carroll, uh, he wrote this like seven volume interpretation of the English Bible. He makes this famous statement in there and this is a Southern Baptist, right? Late 1800s, early 1900s when all of this was really big. He says this, he says the, the modern cry, less creed and more Liberty is the degeneration from the vertebrae to the jellyfish. It means less unity and less morality. And it means more heresy. Hmm. I totally agree with Carol, not just because he has a wicked beard that went down to his belly. <laughs> I agree with Carol because um, what we try to show our people is that a confession or a creed, be it the Apostles' Creed, right, um, you know, Council of Chalcedon, whatever, the, the creeds, the confessions that churches use uh, when biblical, when right, are a means of ensuring safety. Uh, for the congregation. It, it's not that we are putting um, anything above the Bible. We are saying, well, okay, what does the Bible say? We have to be clear enough to our people and not just say like, hey, we believe the Bible, which isn't helpful, but say, here's what we believe the Bible says. And so whether you have a statement of faith on your website or a historic confession, you are essentially um, summarizing some of what the Bible teaches. And so what I like to say is that when churches embrace uh, a confessional standard, the, the benefit to that is that there is clarity about your doctrine. Uh, people like to know what we believe, especially today, right? With all the craziness, like wackos, you know, like, you know, some people call us fundamentalists because we believe in hell. And then other people call us liberals because we don't care if people drink beer or bourbon or smoke cigars. Um, people call us emerging because I've got tattoos and a beard. It's like, it's like, these are all really ridiculous, inaccurate statements about who we are. So a confession helps to clarify what you actually believe, what's important to you. So it clarifies. Um, the second thing that it does is it unifies. It really helps um, the church to understand, wow, this is what we are coming around. And this is not just something that we made up. This is something that we embrace along with a bunch of other people. So it provides a basis of unity with a lot of other believers and even believers outside of our circle, right? Because when we say 1689 and we tell people we totally stole this from the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, um, that means, wow, we actually have unity with them too. Hmm. Because we're we're very much on the same page in most areas. Yeah. And then it also produces uh, or at least allows us to exercise charity. 
right? Because we recognize, um, wow, you know what? We are relying on other people to articulate this for us. We think they've done a great job. And, you know, we are frail, fallen people. And, you know, in as, in, in as much as, as these things are biblical and true, we want to affirm them and we want to teach them. And we don't feel like, wow, we're so much better than the Presbyterians um, because we disagree. We happen to think we're right on a particular issue, and we think that, that you guys are wrong on a particular issue, and that goes both ways, of course. But it, it provides um, a context where because we already have established some level of unity and brotherhood, there's affection now that allows us to be less pugnacious about it. So I think the, the benefits are, are far outweigh the dangers of not having one. The danger of not having one is that your theology, because it's never clarified, the theology of the church can drift and will drift in time. Right, because you see that drift as everybody's able to make up their own minds on what the Bible believes or, or to say. On the other side, though, you see the extreme where people come in and they believe the pastor now he is inspired, and he only is the only one who has the secret knowledge. So we all need to go to him for uh, the, the full understanding, and that that's as equally dangerous. You, you're, right? Yeah, you got to watch out for those Gnostic pastors. Exactly. <laughs> um, let's. One of the hopes of the Confessional Collective is that we're not just big on truth, but that we're also big on mission. And one of the questions I would ask you as a church planter who is confessional, what would you say to the importance uh, that you would place to young planters on the importance of them settling on a confession before they ever go out and launch as opposed to writing their own statement of faith? Yeah, well, I would say you're not smart enough to write your own statement of faith. Um, I would say it like that. You are um, uh, a young man. Uh, you have a lot to learn, and you will benefit from leaning on the theological and pastoral uh, work that a group of men have have done beforehand. Um, so I certainly you, you're smart enough to draw up a, a statement of faith that maybe is accurate, but if it's accurate, it's likely to be very small. Now some people favor that; they don't like detail. They don't like they like, hey, we're just going to affirm the Apostles' Creed, man. It's just what we want to do. Um, but I I encourage church planters to go with a um, a historic confession of some kind, so that it, it does kind of anchor them to the church that has gone before it. That it is not seen as something uh, new and inventive, but something that is historic and trusted. I mean, that it's really helpful um, for people to say, like, "Oh, I, I can see that." You know, we don't just have another church plant popping up, but here's a church plant that sees itself as a part of something historical. So I think that's really important. And and with that, I, I think you can't, if you're going to plant a church, you are essentially moving forward with the Great Commission with a small team of people to, to, you know, to make disciples. And so what are you, you going to gather them around? You know, and there's this big call to be missional, right? We're going to be a missional church. We're going to re- – and that means you know, 10 things to 10 different people. But if we just say that to be missional is to uh, look strategically at how we can best make disciples, right, because that's the mission – um, if, if that's what we're talking about, and that's what I'm talking about, if you want to be missional, then I, I believe you must first be confessional because you need something that you can clearly use as a means for um, making these disciples, for drawing proper boundaries. Um, a, a confession is of, of the faith 
is what leads to a, a community of faith. Uh, it, it, how do you have a community of faith without a confession, without some clear teaching on, on what the gospel is and what the scripture teaches? So I think confession is what gives birth to mission. Not the other way around. I think when – like a lot in the emergent church used to say that you know mission is what gives life to theology, and there is perhaps a sense in which you can say that that's true, that you know community gives birth to theology. I think that overall though, and in, in, in a much more biblical sense, that it is, it is theology, it is God's word incarnated even that gives birth to – um, community, not the other way around. So I, I encourage people, know what you believe, make sure that you are associated with a brotherhood that um, that shares the same values, that shares the same doctrine, so that when you're out there planting, uh, you're not going alone. Plus, as you're making leaders, raising them up, it's really helpful to have, like we have the abstract of principles. And so Nobody can teach in a community group at our church unless they affirm the whole abstract of principles. They have to teach in accordance with it and not contrary to it. Um, and so when you have a confessional statement like that, uh, it, it provides some safety for your people. So they know like, okay, here's, um, here's sort of the parameters within which we're going to operate. What are some helpful uh, books or how would a, how would a guy who's just going to start planting and he's not been confessional before, he's heard this podcast and says, okay, I want to dig in. What would you recommend him to be reading, um, working through as kind of like the preliminary stuff as he begins to work through that? Well, um, he should know uh, what tribe he's a part of. I mean, if you're planting a church and you're not connected to another church or another denomination, you're doing it wrong. So, um, so your parent church or your denomination, like who are you? What's your history? Trace it back. Now, maybe you're coming out of, of a modern sort of a megachurch movement, and they don't really have any um, confessional standards. They just have a very simple statement of faith. It's going to be a little harder for that person because they, um, they're they not just going to evaluate um, one system, but they're going to wind up evaluating a number of systems to figure out which they think is, is more beneficial. But for the average person, I think, who's planting, they sort of know that they're either Baptist or Presbyterian, uh, theologically, if not denominationally. And so they need to know, like, all right, so if I am you know, uh, Presbyterian, obviously they would be denominational in that context. Um, they need to be very familiar with the confessions. And I think, honestly, we really aren't talking about the Presbyterians here because you guys are so thoroughly confessional. Your church planters have to be. We're really just talking about Baptists and non-denominational guys. So, I mean, I'm right in that, aren't I? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. So um, for the rest, then, I would say be very familiar with the confessions of faith. Know their history. Um, a good understanding of church history is is just as value as – as uh, a, a taking a course in systematic theology. Now, you need to have, understand church history to understand where the church has come from, why the church is the way that it is, or why your denomination is the way that it is. And you'll be able to find in pretty much every stream confessions of faith that are clear, that are articulate, and that resonate with your understanding of Scripture. So, you know, what I tell most of our guys is, you know, become familiar with confession and confessional churches, um, spend time with those brothers, learn from them, 
I mean, the, one of the best things that we can do as pastors and planters is to maintain the posture of a learner at all times. Mm. So we're constantly, you know, growing in our understanding. I, I'm still, I mean, my, my theology is still in development. Um, I, I'm still finding better ways to clarify and to understand uh, the faith that, that I hold. And so, and part of that is because I hang out with good Presbyterian brothers and good Baptist brothers and good non-denominational brothers and, you know, thinkers from various tribes really help me. So I guess being familiar with the confessions, um, spending time with other confessional Christians, uh, understanding some church history. I mean, what books to read? I mean, I mean, I could tell you to read an exposition of one of the, of, of one of the confessions of faith, but that's sort of you know, getting ahead of the issue. Um, so I, I can't think of anything better than to uh, than to read the confession or confessions themselves and to spend time with those guys. Keep keeping along this idea of confessions and mission. Harvey Kahn, who wrote the book Evangelism, Doing Justice, and Preaching Grace, quoted Richard De Ritter by asking this question. He says, "We have confessions and creeds, but where is mission?" And I think that's often what we see, even in my own, um, you know, Presbyterian background, is that we may be theologically rich in the confessions, but there's a missing component of how that translates to mission. How do you see confessionalism and mission uh, coming as like together, two sides of the same coin? Well, a lot of the people that are taking um, <clears throat> that kind of a stance, I believe, confuse what mission is. So, um, you know, what is the mission of the church? Is it one thing or is it many? Um, is the mission of the church feeding the homeless and, and clothing the naked? Um, is the mission of the church to, um, is to, is to move culture in a more moral direction? Is it political involvement? Is the mission of the church to preach the gospel and to teach people what it means to know Christ and to walk in his way? Um, I, my friends and I disagree on this. But I believe that the mission of the church is explicitly to make disciples. The mission of the church is not to feed the homeless and not to work for justice. The mission of the church is to make disciples. And as disciples, we feed the homeless, we clothe the naked, and we work for justice, and we care about politics. So uh, in the Reformed tradition, we've typically seen a distinction made um, between the Great Commission and the Great Commandments, right? So we have the Great Commission calling us to preach the gospel and to make disciples of Jesus. So it is very outward, but it is also inward in that we're continuing to build up. Now, it is related to, but it is not identical to the Great Commandments. And, and specifically here we're talking about the second, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So at our church, um, we have various mercy ministries that we take very seriously from a prison ministry to uh, clothing those who are, are poor or at risk. Um, we've done ESL. Like we, we care about mercy ministry, but we recognize that those ministries are an outflow of what it means to be a Christian church, and it is not necessarily the mission of the church. So I would say on the front end that we have, to just, we have to clarify what we mean by mission. So for me, I think the mission of the church is to make disciples. That is our primary emphasis. And the, um, I think the confessions, it, it's sort of like asking, um, 
the question like, well, we, we have the theology. Uh, what are we supposed to do with it? You know, like we, we have this confession. Now, what do we do with it? Well, I, I, I think it's I think it's rather obvious that we have our confessions and we, we have this theology which is intended to lead people into closer communion with our triune God, to live out a life of faith and obedience. And in doing that, what other people might call mission is that we find the byproduct coming of, of, um, of that. So I say we, you know, theology is what gives birth to community and community is what gives birth to, um, mercy ministries or what some people might want to call mission. But, um, I, I, I disagree on what mission is with a lot of people. Awesome. I know one of the major discussions is the issue of the regulative principle. If you're going to be confessional, you're going to end up being regulative. Uh, how does that play in the way you do worship um, and the way you're subscribing to your confession? Yeah, well, we would say that we embrace the regulative principle uh, in worship, meaning that the only things that become essential elements in our worship are prescribed in Scripture. Um, and if it is not prescribed, we do not do it. If it is an essential element of worship, you know, there's what people call the adiaphora or those those matters that are um, – inconsequential or accidental to the nature of what we're doing. So whether it's pews or an overhead projector, it's irrelevant. Whether it's, um, uh, you know, um, hymnals or, um, you know, hymns from the 1800s or hymns from the 21st century, um, we don't think it really matters. But what the scripture does prescribe, those must be there. And if you want to introduce, so for example, we'll say the reading of the word and the preaching of the word and the singing of the word, uh, the praying of the word, right? We've got word and sacrament, right? Feasting upon the word, um, you know, the, the, the offering, like all of these things that scripture prescribes must be there and they must be there every Sunday. Um, outside of that, you have some liberty if it is non-essential, and culture helps us to figure out the best ways to do that, right? Because when you sing uh, in a church in Northern Africa on the Lord's Day, it's going to sound different than singing uh, in my church uh, in the western suburbs of Chicago, and that's okay. But we're, we should be doing essentially the same things. So um, you have to draw those lines, and unfortunately, those lines aren't always super clear. For us, I've told you what we do. Um, our, our liturgy is, is very explicit. We lay it out for everybody, and um, so there's no drama. Uh, we would consider that including an essential element that shouldn't be there. Uh, there's no skits is what I mean by that. Um, we don't do dancing uh, as a, like interpretive dance or anything like that. Um, I, we, keep, we keep it very, very simple. Now, uh, we do have instruments, and you know, early Baptists didn't like that, but we have, uh, we have instruments. We, we believe that the regulative principle ought to be maybe um, more canonical than just New Testament. I think there is a lot to learn from the whole of Scripture on, on worship and not just the New Testament. But we're, we're very okay with instrumentation. Um, we don't do solos. Uh, everything is congregational. We, um, 
no hazers, no foggers, you know, no moving lights. Uh, there are certain things like that that we just think maybe they're inconsequential, but they're pretty lame. Uh, so we just don't do them. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what to say. Uh, we're, we are regulative. Some people might say we're not because, you know, we have a drum set. And, you know, somebody might be on lap steel and somebody might be on an acoustic and somebody might be on an electric guitar and, um, you know, or a trumpets or, or whatever. So I don't know. Uh, I think that the main thing, the most important thing for people to keep in mind is let the scripture form your corporate worship and be extremely careful with introducing anything um, that is not justified uh, by scripture or necessary to accomplish what scripture prescribes. And the Lord's Supper gives us all the drama we need, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a, if, if, if you're doing it right, then the songs and the preaching and the sacraments are extremely dramatic. And, it, and it's not cheesy. It's not silly. It's not an Oprah moment. It's not a it's not a youth skit. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about the essence of the gospel, the, the life of God, the soul of man. I mean, th this stuff is is life changing. I just I don't. And again, I'm pro drama. I, I like I like art. Hmm. Um, I just don't need cheesy skits in in worship. So, yeah, there's there's nothing more dramatic than the means of grace that God has given the church. Right. So this guy who's coming in and now he's 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 moved along, discovered that he's way more confessional and he's adopted a confession and he's just setting out. He's just starting out. What what would you tell him to be prepared for as far as difficulties that come in being confessional? What what kind of things would you set him up for to say, hey, expect this? Well, uh, church people can be difficult. And so if you are attracting or trying to attract people from other churches um, and you're a confessional, you're probably going to be in the minority and people are going to push back. Um, some people don't like it. They'll, they'll view it as you're, you're elitist. Um, what about the broader body of Christ? Um, you think you've got all the answers and there's a good chance that, you know, a person that's beginning to embrace confessions for the first time, like somebody embracing Calvinism for the first time can be kind of a jerk and kind of a big mouth and kind of a know-it-all. So um, I would watch out for pride on a personal level, and I would, I would encourage people to be soft and gentle, but um, I would also be you know, kind of aware of who you're attracting to your church. Um, if you're reaching lost people, if you're reaching people that have wandered from the faith and are coming back in, um, <clears throat> I don't think you're going to have much pushback. And if you maintain uh, the supremacy and the sufficiency of the word – if you preach that every Sunday, if you don't preach the confession but preach the scripture, you're, you're, I don't think you're li as likely to fall into a lot of conflict. In, uh, you know, in our eight and a half years, we haven't had any conflict at all in our church. We've had people come in and walk out because they don't like it, but um, we haven't had any, any trouble in our church um, about our theology at all. So I don't, I don't really have a lot of wisdom on that because – we haven't we haven't run into any roadblocks because it's all peaches and cream. Everything's smooth, man. Well, I'll tell you, we we don't in eight and a half years we've had to deal with everything from adultery to drug addiction, um, everything in between. But we have not ever got an email about the sermons being too long or the music being too lame or somebody said this about my favorite 
food that I brought to the pot. We, we haven't had any of that garbage. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a great community of brothers and sisters, old and young, poor and wealthy and uh, diverse. And we just um, we, we feel very, very blessed and fortunate that God has protected us uh, from a lot of that. And I think part of it is because um, we have great people who know that the gospel is the main thing. And we have a confessional identity that clarifies who we are and what we are. And we don't club people over the head with it. It's just who we are. Hmm. And people tend to like that. That's awesome. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book, um, Mere Christianity, talks about the hallways and the doorways. And it seems that you've been able to operate very well um, in the hallways and with different groups. You're on everything from Table Talk to Acts 29 um, and, and intermingling there. And I, I understand your confessional stance allows you to have a doorway where you reside. Let's talk just for a few minutes about the hallway and the relationships that you build. How do you determine when it's time to cut somebody loose and when it's okay to link arms? Well, I guess it depends on what level, right? So um, I'm good friends with uh, the charismatic church in town. Um, Pastor Dan and Pastor John are great guys. I see them at the cigar shop frequently. Um, sorry, Life Church, if you didn't know your pastor smoked. So anyways, um, <laughs> I see them there, and they, are, they love Jesus. Um, they get the gospel. They're about the word. They're kind. They're generous. They are legit Christian men. I love seeing them and talking to them. And so um, they're brothers. You know, I would hang out with them. Now, um, I don't know enough about their church, but I doubt that we would link our churches together for a disciple making endeavor um, because we're just too different on everything from signs and wonders to complementarianism to, I mean, there's just not that it's just one thing. There's just a bunch of things that when combined, I think would make it hard. So we are ready to um, link arms with churches that essentially are preaching the word, have a high view of God, and um, are, are, are I guess, I guess you could say, share our general vision for what it means to make, you know, make disciples uh, in in real life. So um, some might be a bit more programmatic. Uh, some might be more reformed, some might be less reformed, but, um, you know, for us, we're just happy to, um, to do what we're doing. And if people want to participate with us, uh, that might be great. If we see people that are doing a good thing, we're happy to promote them. So I, I think linking arms as a church is more tricky than linking arms as brothers, mm. you know, out in the city. Um, like for example, there's, there's a church in town there are two churches in town that in our city that we recommend people. So when they come and visit us, we're like, hey, we're so glad we're here. I hope you come back. But if you're church searching, if you're new in the city, check out Fox Valley Bible. No, I'm sorry. Now it's called New Covenant Bible Church. Check out New Covenant Bible Church and check out Bethel. Um, Bethel's a small church, and um, it's just poised to really be experiencing some good growth. And New Covenant has a ton of programs and, and more people, and bigger. it's bigger than us. You know, We're a small church. And so we can point people to those guys because we know the pastors, they're solid guys, they're all Calvinists, and we're just – we're happy to do that. Um, so I don't, I don't know where to draw the line for, for everybody, but gospel centrality and making disciples, if they're doing that, um, I'm pretty happy. But then it would depend on like 
what level at which they want to participate, you know, like link arms to, to put to put on a conference. If we're going to if they wanted to sponsor a conference with us, um, I think that if we were going to if I was going to put on a conference and they wanted to sponsor it, I think that would provide a broader tent. Um, but if we were going to partner together for co-teaching, that would be a much smaller tent. OK, um, really, thank you for your time. I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to share? Any words of wisdom? No, I don't have I don't have much wisdom to share uh, other than um, stay in the word. Stay right? in the word. Amen. Stay in the word. Stay close to Jesus. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. We know you're a busy guy and we just really appreciate that you were willing to be part of our first podcast and uh, really excited about what God's doing there in Chicago through you. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. Uh, I'm really excited uh, about the podcast. We need more good ones, and so I can't wait to see this thing take off. Thanks. Take care. All right, brother. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.